welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. Today I'm going to be speaking with Philip Shepherd. Philip is a recognized leader in the global embodiment movement and I had the pleasure of attending one of his workshops. I think it was earlier this year or late last year in Europe and I just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's very rich teachings and powerful exercises. So I wanted to get him on the podcast and we're going to be exploring basically the philosophy behind Philip's work. I think he has a different view than the prevailing view of embodiment, which can you know, teach this notion of listening to the body, which perpetuates this mind-body split. And Philip's approach really helps you listen through the body to the world. Uh, Philip is the author of several books, including New Self, New World, Radical Wholeness, which I really enjoyed, and Deep Fitness. He runs trainings internationally and online, including facilitator trainings. So I recommend that you check him out. Before we dive in, just a few more words about Coaches Rising. We care deeply about the impact that coaches can have in these challenging times. And so we have online trainings for coaches around different topics, with some of the best coaches in the world. So if you're interested in topics like somatics and coaching or the power of presence in transformation or the neuroscience of change or adult development theory and coaching, then you can head to coachesrising.com and check out some of our offerings there and sign up for our mailing list too and keep in the loop about what we're creating. All right, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Philip Shepard. So Philip, it's really nice to see you again. Last time we saw each other was face-to-face and that was in, well, it wasn't in Amsterdam, it was in Harlem, wasn't it? Harlem, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. To, how are you doing today? Just great. Um, summer's here. Tennis is back. And I'm home for the summer. So, you know, um, what could be better? You, do you play tennis yourself or are you watching tennis on I TV? I play tennis. Now, yeah. you know, I don't play it well, but I, I make up for that with enthusiasm. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been really excited to speak to you on the podcast because I came across your work and really fell in love with it. And, you know, I've attended a, a workshop of yours and really appreciate that. So it feels like it's been a long time coming, but um, here we are. And um, well, maybe just as an initial question, you could just share a little bit about who you are and what you do and <laughs> you know, we could speak. You could answer that question for the next ninety minutes, but just to give, yeah, I'll the try to keep. I'll try to keep it shorter than that. The main issue I faced as a teenager was that I I literally felt my life being um, diminished, being thwarted, being being hemmed in by my culture. Um, my remedy for that was to go to England and buy a bicycle and head off for Japan. Um, so I was gone two years and it enabled me to bring questions to bear on the milieu in which I'd been brought up that was so, so deeply familiar to me. I think the most difficult thing in the world is to question what you've habituated to. And so the, res- the result of this inquiry 
is I've written three books. Um, Deep Fitness is my most recent, which I co-wrote with Andrei Yakovenko. Um, and the other, the first two were New Self, New World, and Radical Wholeness. And um, the books aren't just theoretical. I, I, I have 150 practices um, that I've developed, and each practice targets uh, a sensitivity that has been dulled or or minimized by our culture we you know as a culture we contract into me and and my space and my concerns and we you know we're held by all the world but you know it's not that we lose wholeness i mean how do you how do you lose it's like a a fish losing the ocean i mean no you're the ocean's all around you wholeness is here but we are systematically desensitized to it by our culture so so the practices you know there are, are as many practices as there are ways in which our culture desensitizes us to the world hmm. yeah i was i was going to ask you about how your work is a response to these times and uh, you know you said like that we we get habituated and I think that right now it feels like we're we're in this process of questioning things on a on a deep level, you know, the ways that we've been habituated collectively and individually. And so maybe you could just speak to, you know, I mean, this is I'm gonna throw a lot at you here, but like how are you making sense of these times? And <clears throat> how is your work a response to these times? And you know, we might weave in this notion of wholeness there and, and like how we've been dulled out of that. Like, you know, what, what perhaps is the worldview, the ways we've been living that have taken out of our sense of wholeness. So because just one little thing I'll add is like, that's what speaks to me deeply. You know, this journey, uh, the, 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 the recognition of wholeness, uh, the opening to wholeness, I feel is like just one of the key moves of our times. And I see more and more people opening to that idea. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wholeness is all there is. There is, there, you know, we, we speak about independence. I would, I would banish the word from our language because it, there's nothing it can refer to. If there's no, there's no, single example of independence in the cosmos everything depends on everything everything affects everything and and you know when you lose your sense of wholeness you're losing your sense of reality i mean because reality is wholeness and 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 we you know are, are as i said we've been systematically desensitized to it so you know, what does it mean to speak from your wholeness or to listen from your wholeness? What does it mean to feel the present in its wholeness? Not, you know, not noticing aspects of it, but feeling it's the living whole that, that has you in its embrace. Um, what does it mean to think with the whole of your being? We, you know, we've been trained to think with this fragment of our intelligence on top of the shoulders and, and, 
and the whole of the body is suffused with with thinking there's no cell that doesn't participate in it but we compartmentalize i mean you know you can think with the head or you can you know feel from the heart but but it's an either or they don't go together and and you know so it is with all the body the intelligence of the legs the intelligence of the pelvic bowl these are these are cordoned off from each other and you know to go to your question how do i understand what is going on in the world on so so many levels when you desensitize to wholeness your actions will not take it into account and you will you will do damage to the living systems um, that that uphold the ecology of of this planet and there are <laughs> um, so many really valuable ways of addressing the problem but i think the fundamental problem is our relationship to the body i think there is nothing more primary individually personally than your relationship to your body so that your relationship to the body becomes the template for how you relate to the world how you relate to others and if you're living in your head with this top-down supervising controlling relationship with the body which is which is what we learn then your approach to nature, your approach to the problems of your life will be top-down supervisory. So just to be clear, the body processes over a billion times more information than we can be consciously aware of. And there are people who experience the body's intelligence as slower than that of the brain and the head and it's just the opposite the the body is like a quantum computer it is processing everything and yes that takes time but you know the the sort of arrogant intelligence in the head is processing such a tightly circumscribed realm of information well it can do that very quickly but cannot begin to take into account the the whole the realm the teeming information that courses through the body and the body attunes to every fluctuation of the present so then the, the choice is i mean you'll never be consciously aware of that information but you can feel it and either you can choose to feel it or you can choose to live in your head and continue supervising and you know to come back to the body um somewhere here yeah um here's how i here's how i understand the body it's like a singing bowl it is a resonator and the present is going like this and the body is singing to the world feeling it but what happens in our culture is we we stuff the body full of unintegrated emotions and anxieties and concerns for the future and abstractions and and so the present it's still going like this but we stop feeling it we don't we there is no present to be felt in in its wholeness and when you can't feel the present 
you can't feel its guidance. And then all you can do is live in the head and supervise yourself. And then you eclipse that fathomless intelligence in the body. So to me, inner work is about discovering what is unintegrated in the body, those orphans, those shadows of held energy, and integrating them, that once again, we can resonate to the world. Mm. So much in what you're sharing there. I'm curious, like, I, I do want to talk about that you just described integration uh, and the things that kind of dull our, our capacity to resonate with the world. I want to go there maybe a bit later, but um, I, I really, this is what I really appreciate. So it, it feels like one of the moves in our times is like a move out of an abstracted relationship to the world, you know, knowing about things like, you know, through concepts and that I don't want to denigrate that completely. There's use, use to that faculty. Like it is an intelligence, but there's a different mode of perception, a different kind of intelligence that perhaps is more, suited for these times in terms of the complexity and the volatility that we're experiencing, which from our sense of abstracted minds might feel very threatening. And perhaps it is, you know, we can certainly say these events like, um, you know, the, the, the uh, ecological crises and wars and things are threatening, but perhaps from this different mode of perception and, and we're resonating with the world, we would be, I think, better equipped to, to navigate it. I'm just curious if you think it is a different mode of perceiving that's different from, you know, abstraction and, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying we're starting to move away from the abstraction. I have to add to that that, much of what I see is caught in the very paradigm we're trying to shift. Um, you know, the story of our disembodiment, this isn't the last 50 years or the last 100 years. This is the last 2,500 years. You know, you go back to Plato, you go, go back to Timaeus, his dialogue, and and. This very wise man, Timaeus, is asked, how do the gods make humankind? And his answer was, well, first they fashioned this divine sphere based on the orbs of the heaven. And then they realized that this, this sphere needed a vehicle to get around. So they grew it arms and legs and a trunk. So there we are, 350 B.C., and the body's being described as a vehicle to carry around the divinest part of us, the head. So the modalities that are brilliantly, thankfully, seeking to bring us back to the body, many of them remain stuck in this paradigm, this thousand-year-old. I mean, it's, it's really, it's 8,000 years if you go back to the Neolithic Revolution. That's how long we've been striving to leave the body and 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 go into an increasingly abstract realm of the of the head so so you know listening to the body is a lovely 
exhortation. It's a lovely suggestion, but look at the metaphor. Basically, it's saying, you know, there's a wall that separates you from the body, and the best you can do is put your ear to it, to, to listen to what's going on on the other side. That's what listening to the body suggests. You know, um, there's much of mindfulness that is about, about noticing the grain of the wood, noticing the touch of the air, noticing the, the sunlight on the leaves, whatever it might be, but you're sitting in your head, noticing. So, so just to say, my work is not about listening to the body. It's about integrating what takes up the spaciousness of the body, that you can listen to the world through the body. And that is a different mode. That is the mode that has enabled our species to survive, um, you know, prior to the Neolithic revolution. So you think of medicinal plants and how these, you know, indigenous cultures uh, have, have a brilliant knowledge of medicinal plants. And so we think, well, you know, over, over, hundreds, maybe thousands of years, trial and error, that they're bound to learn what works and what doesn't. What a notion, trial and error. Can you imagine that in practice? You know, John has a headache. What, what plants haven't we tried for headache? Oh, here's one. John, eat this. Oh, no, John died. Um, let's see, we have another 230 plants to try for headache. Does anyone else have a headache? I mean, this is nonsensical. They attune. the. Pl Any indigenous culture will tell you the plants speak to them. This is, a, this is an attunement to the world. This is a different way of being. Any hunter-gatherer culture will tell you they can feel the movement of animals. There's a great story in a book called The Other Side of Eden um, about Igruk, this, this, this um, Inuit who was known as a great whale hunter. And he was very old at this point, And they were camped out beside a, an opening in the ice. And he was kind of lying on the side on a, on a bed of furs, and suddenly he opened his eyes and he, think, he said, I think a whale is nearby, and then it will breach very soon. Well, everyone rushed out and stood, and sure enough, a whale breached in that opening in the ice. That's how we survive, by feeling the world, by harmonizing with it. And if we are going to survive um, the, the increasingly erratic breakdown of all that we depend on, then our tendency to want to outthink our circumstances will become less and less effective. And we will need to more and more rely on the attunement of the body. And I, I can tell you a personal story about that. Um, when I was on this bike trip. I mean, there I am, a teenager heading across yeah, Europe. Just tell us, because that was an extraordinary thing you did there as well, huh? It was, it was so important to me. And, you know, every morning I'd wake up without any idea of what was over the next hill or where I'd be that night. And I'd cycle all day long. Because you were cycling to Japan, yeah, from England. Well, uh, yeah, there were a few waterways <laughs> in, in, you know, to be crossed. So I, I did take a, a ferry um, to Calais uh, from Dover. And, um, and, and it, the reality is I got to India, this was 1972, and um, China wouldn't let me come in. And 
uh, I couldn't get into um, Burma at all. It was just locked down. Like you could fly into Rangoon and fly up. They would not let anyone over the border. So I sort of got stumped. So I, I cycled around India for a bit and then flew from New Delhi to Hong Kong and from Hong Kong to Osaka and then cycled through Japan to Tokyo. Um, but here's what I wanted to say. I didn't have a tent because when you have a tent, everyone knows where you are and you don't know where anyone else is. So I would just go with my, you know, I had a little air mattress in my sleeping bag and dusk would be coming. I'd be, you know, kind of aware. Oh, I need to find a place to sleep safely tonight. And every night it was as though I was taken by the hand and led, you know, right here, over here, down here to a place where I could spend the night safely. And in all, in all those travels, in all those nights I spent outside at night in a, in a, in a country I didn't know well, um, I wasn't disturbed once. And that palpable sense, like my life depended on it. And I think when your life depends on a sensitivity, it, it rushes to the fore. And there was no question I was being guided by an attunement of the body every night to a place where I would be safe for the night. Yeah, yeah that's really... That's a really beautiful story. And so I'm actually curious um, what then led you from there to discover, you know, we'll talk about the pelvic bowl, the pelvic floor and integration, but yeah, from there, what led you to, to, to on this journey into, into your body in this sense that you're describing? It was a long and winding path. Um, I was deeply, deeply drawn to Japan because of a form of theater they have that's 600 years old and has remained unchanged over those centuries. It's called No Theater. And I saw a No play when I was 17 in Montreal and was shaken to my core by it. Just, just it was the most moving theatrical experience I'd ever had. And on the other hand, I had no idea how it had had that effect on me. What, what just happened? Um, and so I was really, you know, it was, it was sort of like I'd been accepted to study physics at university. So there was that possibility. And then there was this puzzle of the Japanese theater. And, and I think that I finally found the, mystery of no theater more compelling than the mystery of quantum physics. So I went to Japan and, and the whole culture in Japan um, recognizes what they call hara, which is the Japanese word for belly. That the belly is, is where your profoundest understanding lies. The belly is where every every movement, every word of no theater arises from. So in no theater, when someone turns and looks, they're looking from that place. And I had never seen that before. I mean, in all my years in Western culture, I had never seen someone see from the belly um, and, and move from that intelligence. And, and so I came to understand 
a little bit of how it had had that effect on me. And, and that whole experience gave a validity um, to the belly. And in fact, you know, before I went to Japan, um, before I left on the trip, I was, there was a rage in my pelvic bowl. There was a place I would go and it was, it was like, it was like, you are not going to take me down. <laughs> it's the feeling that I can't. So I, you know, for, for whatever reason, I, I had access to the pelvic floor, to the intelligence of the pelvic bowl. It's what, it's what catapulted me to England to buy a bike. Um, and the, the journey since then, I mean, there's this basic aspect of my nature, which craves freedom. I even, I even coined a word, eleutheromaniac, which, which means someone with a mania for freedom. Um, and, and that coupled with my love of theater. So I've been an actor all my life and I love theater. And so how to be free as an actor is the same question as how to be free off stage because any practice, any role an actor is given is just another way to explore how to be present. And, you know, I, I um, co-founded an interdisciplinary theater. So there were three directors, a dancer, a mime, and me, and we trained each other and, and created shows together. And I met up with a British director who was living in Canada, Stephen Rumbelow, who founded Triple Action Theater in London in the 60s. And, and, and he, I mean, his whole thing was physical theater. And I trained with him and did, I don't know how many shows with him. Uh, I learned so much from him. So here I am as an actor um, trying to be free. And every little bit of freedom I gain as an actor helps me in my daily life. And then every little bit of freedom I find in my daily life helps me as an actor. And it's like back and forth. And the, the questions that I face as an actor, how, you know, I, I, I learned eventually that there's no right way to do any part, any role, um, any scene. It's, it's only a question of, is it alive or isn't it? And if it's fully alive, the audience will feel it. And so, and so that nurturing of my being into that state of full aliveness on stage um, was an absolutely invaluable part of that journey back to my body. Um, and, you know, I studied voice um, for five years privately. I also trained with an energy healer, um, who was all about the body, all about the pelvic bowl, and had actually um, healed himself from a cancer that uh, was so severe he'd been given three weeks to live. And, and, he, and he, his work is also about the pelvic bowl. So, so layer upon layer upon layer, and I'm scrabbling my way, you know, to, to greater freedom the whole time. I really appreciate this story because actually these these different fields that you've immersed yourself in speak to this quality of wholeness 
and presence really beautifully. There's a kind of transmission inside of them. And I I wonder if you could say something, because you said like I, I I've just like always oriented towards freedom. Like what's it like for you when you, you, you know, like moving from this place, you know, mm. I don't know how you would describe it, like, a, you know, maybe moving from the pelvic bowl, but moving from being attuned to wholeness, l- listening to the world. It's like I, I, I get this sense of like moving from a different place. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And so you're attuned to that. And I'm just curious mm. if it's possible for you to put words to, like when you're in that place, what it's like, and probably you might notice when you move out of it, you know, might, that might be one of the, the, the signs, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the challenge of trying to put it into words. So I will give it. Because a- it it's probably beyond concept in a sense, isn't it? But anyway. Um, yeah. It's beyond concept, but there are certain qualities that are very clear. Um, I'm not in charge any more than a surfer riding a wave is in charge of the wave. I can dance on the wave, I can play with it, but I don't, I don't fool myself into thinking I'm in charge of it. So there is, there is I mean, the, the present is a wave moving us forward. Um, and I attune to it and find guidance there and, and make choices, um, but, but, in partnership, not alone. So that's another quality. I'm not in charge. Also, I'm not alone. <laughs> and, you know, as a culture, we're told you are alone. Stand on your own two feet. Be independent. And it's like we're taken as seedlings and stuffed into this pot of aloneness and said, grow there. Now, there is no aloneness. I mean, you are so intimately felt by all the world that your heartbeat is felt, your breath is felt, you are feeling the world. There is, there is only reciprocal exchange. There is, is no aloneness. But as soon as you accept that premise that you're alone, then it's like this row of dominoes that starts to fall. If I'm truly alone, then my experience is truly private. And if my experience is truly private, if it's not shared, it's just mine, then my number one job in life is to make that experience a success, to make it feel good, to, to, uh, to organize it correctly, to get the right ideas, to guide it by. So I, it's like I'm taking the spotlight of my attention and turning it off the world so the world falls into shadow. And I'm putting that spotlight on myself and I'm busy organizing. I'm organizing my thoughts. I'm organizing my emotions. I'm organizing my responses. I'm correcting. You know, I'm, it's this whole, and I am in a state of division. I am watching myself. I am self-conscious. So we are trapped in this self-consciousness as, as a culture. And my primary relationship in that self-consciousness is between the divided parts of myself. It's, it's that negotiation that takes up most of my energy and most of my time. Um, and, and, you know, that, that other way of being 
literally your primary relationship becomes with the felt present, with the felt whole. And, and I mean, self-consciousness feels like crap. Why would you go back to it? <laughs> but, but, but there's this, you know, I mean, the answer to that is because we rely on this vigilance that it, you know, looks out for us, wants to keep us safe and all the rest of it. But the premise of that is also misguided because, I mean, vigilance is necessary. I, you know, the hunter-gatherer cultures were, were supremely vigilant. They felt everything, but they were relying on the vigilance of the present. The present feels everything. Everything that happens is moving through the field of the present. So if I'm sitting in my head with that vigilance, I am immune to the vigilance of the present, which is infinitely more sensitized to the world and aware of the world than this disconnected fragment of my intelligence can ever be. So to drop into the body, into that singing bowl, and feel the groundedness and the fluidity and the spaciousness that, that enable you to attune, um, it's so much easier. And it takes us out of self-conflict. So when we're in that state of division, we are pitted against the self, one part pitted against the other, trying to make it right trying to and and boy that's exhausting to be in in enmeshed in 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 an endless state of self-conflict um how much easier to give up on that and allow your awareness to dilate into the present and feel it as as we rather than me and it hmm. That does feel like part of the, like what's breaking down the hyper individuality that we, that we've grown up with, you know, and this sense of actually um, uh, an identity that could be based on interdependence and not a conceptual sense of independent of interdependence, but a felt sense of interdependence and that, that then the work, you know, if I could say the work, because that's a laden, you know, a laden idea, isn't it? The work, but, you know, the journey might be a better thing is then to, to you know, re-acclimatize or um, uh, sensitize our, this mode of perception. Because, yeah, there's something about what you say about the parts of us in conflict. I feel like that a lot of, people's self-development work is parts kind of battling with other parts. And what I appreciated in your book was this idea of integration where, you know, the present and, and presence um, can, can embrace uh, the parts or the conflict compassionately in a way that they that then begin to, to melt or to, to integrate. And there's a, a dropping down in the body. And so maybe this is a good place where you could just talk about that, that notion of integration. And 
yeah, we haven't really talked about the pelvic bowl and the pelvic floor. Just a thing I want to add in here was like, I found it remarkable in your workshop when, you know, the, for example, the exercise of, um, and maybe this is kind of taking us into the, into a bit of a tangent, but it's a really important one. Um, the exercise of thinking of a concept like snow, I can't remember what the word, the, you know, from our, from our heads, from our hearts, from our belly, and then from the perineum. And that was profound for me to experience the, the I'm doing in inverted commas here, concept of snow from the perineum where it actually became a kind of gnosis, you know, like a, um, uh, the knowing and being unified. And it was no longer like, oh, there's this abstract thing called snow, which I'm, you know, it was like being in the living experience of snow. And that was, that was fulfilling and moving. And I can even feel it now as I speak about it. It's like, oh, like, don't we all want more of that, you know? So, so anyway, I'm, I'm just asking about this notion, this journey we make, you know, the, in, the, the path of integration and, and what, yeah, how come the pelvic bowl and the, the pelvic floor? Yeah. Um, Joel, there's so much in, in, in what you said that I'd love to respond to. Let's say first there's the issue of intelligence. So we have um, flattered the intelligence in the head by declaring that that intelligence is the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. That's one bandwidth on this massive spectrum. And I, I want to name that spectrum. And so the word that comes up for me is sensitivity. That the sensitivity to a child's tears, to the movement of a whale beneath the ice, to legal argument, to a flower, any sensitivity is a form of intelligence. Now, the issue with sensitivity is that it is necessarily reactive. If the retina didn't react, we wouldn't see. So that reactivity has to be grounded in order to become coherent. And that's where the body comes in. The body grounds that intelligence. Now, if you can understand intelligence as grounded sensitivity, then you can see how our school system undermines it. Basically, our kids are desensitized, going through, desensitized to their own bodies, going through it, and they are increasingly ungrounded. Um, we're a very, very, very clever culture. I mean, so much more clever than any other culture that has ever been. But we have forgotten how to live intelligently. And, and, and sensitivity in our culture is just demeaned. So to take an idea from the head, like snow, and let it come down through the body. And as I understand it, it is arriving in the realm of the pelvic bowl and integrating. And let me give a, a, a sort of metaphor for integration. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with a murmuration of starlings, but surely they've seen it. It's like you get up to a quarter of a million birds at dusk moving like an amoeba 
in the sky and it, it elongates and ripples and contracts and lifts. And it's the most astonishing display of harmony I know of. Now imagine a lone starling, not part of the murmuration, and its flight is erratic and reactive, and then it joins the murmuration. And now its flight is harmonized by the whole, and it has added a new sensitivity to the whole. So when that concept of snow, that idea of snow, drops down through the body and becomes a lived experience, you are newly sensitized to snow and so to the world in some way. And rather than the idea standing between you and snow, um, you know, I can name tree, I can name book, I can name, I can name, there's nothing around me that I can't name. I know what it all is, so why would I have to feel any of it? And that's our problem. We have all these unintegrated ideas that, that haven't sensitized us. And, and that quality of integration, of, of bringing something into the realm of your being, that it might integrate, that's the same whether it's an idea or an emotion. I mean, we can, we can carry stuck emotions around with us for decades. And, you know, the premise of that is, if I allow this to come in contact with my being, I will be annihilated. And, and at a certain age, that may well have been true. But, you know, as the years go by and you find your feet, there's a period at which that you can take that risk. You can allow that to happen gently, easily, and feel it integrate. And, the, you know, you talked about um, our identity based on interdependence. To me, that's that's the same as our identity based on reality. I mean, anything other than an identity based on interdependence is, is a fantasy. And um, when you talk about knowing and being, it's like they are unified. I think you're pointing to the primary wound with which we've all been afflicted in our culture, which is the division between our thinking and our being. We've been trained to feel them as different things. You know, you come out of, of 12 years in the school system believing that you can think more clearly with this fragment of intelligence in your brain than you can with the whole. And so feeling is one thing and thinking is another. And, and when they, I, I mean, it's an artifice, that separation. And, and you can see that if you go back to, there's a Latin verb, sentire, which means to think, to feel. The same thing in one word. And we, we retain that in English because sentire gave us our word sense. So I might say to you, you're not making sense. And I'm, I'm saying your thinking is muddled. Or I might say, I sense something's wrong, and that means I feel something's wrong. But when thinking and being come together again, you feel every thought. So it's like back to that singing boy. You know, I, I feel my thoughts through the whole of my being, and they 
sublimate within its spaciousness and emerge as words. But I'm not, I'm not, it hurts. Uh, I, I can think just with the head and speak from there. And I, I can say a whole lot of really, really interesting things from that space. But, oh, my gosh, I, I'm not present. And so my my thoughts aren't nurtured by the sensitivity of the whole. There's this whole thing about self-regulation. And I think it's a, a dangerous notion to think you can self-regulate. I think what you can do is find ways of coming home to the present that you might be regulated by the present. There is a harmony to the present, and as you join it, you are regulated. But to, to think you can organize yourself and self-regulate, it's to me, it's, it's, it's dangerous. Yes, there are means and techniques that can open you to the present and let you come to rest in it. But, but the regulation is happening through your relationship with the whole. Yeah. This is, you, you, this is what I wanted to mention next. So it's beautiful that you brought it in. I, I like to think of this in terms of depth. That, that, um, and this is, this is, I've been inspired by the work of Steve March around this. Like He talks about these four depths, the depth of parts, process, presence, and non-duality. And, and that, yes, if we are um, trying to regulate ourselves, if we're, if we're in the depth of parts, you know, um, and a part is trying to regulate another part or regulate the self, then it's difficult, you know, because it doesn't have the, the qualities that are, are needed that you're describing. You know, when we, when we are able to um, become aware of where we are to, to, um, to, in a sense, how can I say it? Like to to accept where we are, to acknowledge and accept, and not try to change ourselves. And and the the depth of process is where felt experience, because that felt experience can then come online once we once we begin to to recognize and acknowledge these parts compassionately. And it's it's wholeness or presence that can um, can, can be with a part in a way that it feels. Um, you know, seen unconditionally and can integrate. And so that, yeah, I'm just kind of echoing back what I um, hear you saying. Yes, it's like a faculty that we've lost a lot, you know. That, so so I'm, I'm really excited and, and touched to hear what you're sharing about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think our culture knows almost nothing about integration, like we can we can arrange we can organize we can systematize but integration that happens through the body and 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 we've dismissed the body and its intelligence so so we carry these orphans i see them as orphans within us these these energies that have been put on hold that that are armoring us against the present and and so that's you know back to that image of the singing bowl how to integrate them and and you know the orphans you know I, I know there are schools of thought that talk about your saboteurs you know as soon as you as soon as you name something a saboteur how are you going to integrate it no you're not you're going to defeat it 
and we have this 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 sort of strategy of of fixing ourselves or defeating the bad parts of ourselves or overcoming or but no the, the, there's only one path to wholeness which is integration wholeness excludes nothing and so how to feel those orphans within the body and give them the compassion that you speak of because they they're they're clenched to keep you safe. They've been standing guard to keep you safe. They're reactive to keep you safe. And they don't, they don't even know that you're not eight years old anymore, right? And to, to feel those clotted energies and bring them into the light and give them your unconditional acceptance then makes it possible to lead them home to the pelvic bowl in, in, love and understanding because yeah that that's i read that part in your book it's really intriguing so uh yeah to, so there's an acceptance uh that's there uh, love and acceptance and then what's that like because uh, let me the, in one sense i hear you talking about dropping a change agenda yeah like we, we often have this change agenda coming from a sense of deficiency i think this is perhaps a uh, another feature of our times you know but it's like my experience from wholeness is there is no sense of deficiency and wholeness it's it's a felt sense of feeling whole and yet that can include it can include our brokenheartedness or pain it's not not something to be to be maintained you know that that um, will be disturbed by those things they can show up again um but then so my question is about things coming into the pelvic bowl it's like do you, is that because where, where is that happening from is that like a process that then begins to naturally happen because i can imagine easily people might go okay I'm, I'm accepting this this thing inside of me and now i need to take it into the pelvic bowl you know and there's a kind of there's a change agenda and imposition is it is it yeah is, I, you know, is it a change agenda? Is it a desire for integration? I mean, if you're unintegrated, then maybe you'd want to change that and allow the integration. So at the most basic level, what we are seeking is to live our fullest reality, I think. I mean, I, I mean that's what I'm seeking. I mean, I think a lot of people are as afraid of their own aliveness as they are of, of, of their death. Um, but, but if you want to come back to being, if you want to come out of that frenetic agenda of doing that, that, that validates your life only by what you achieve and how fast you achieve it and back to being, which is, which is the ground of, of your very life and, and health, then it, it helps to recognize the qualities of being. And it's really interesting to me to reflect on what are the qualities of being. So being is spacious. You know, you can, you can look at the, at the hardest thing in the world, and, and if you were to peer into that at a subatomic level, it's over 99% empty space. You are over 99% empty space. Being is inherently spacious. Your being is inherently spacious. And then 
you recognize how congested our bodies become. They become thick and clotted and, and dulled to the world. And so, you know, that the process of integration requires a spaciousness. Because if there's not the spaciousness through which those orphans can move, how, how, do, you, how do you move them? The second quality of being that I reflect on is fluidity. So everything's fluid. There's, there's nothing that is absolutely still, which is why you can't bring anything to absolute zero, because it, it, it will move, it will move, it will not stop. And, and you know, we're 65% water. I mean, we are fluid beings, and yet we, we feel hardened and, and stuck and, and brittle in the world. We're, so how to recover your fluidity? And by recovering your fluidity, all you're doing is coming back to your reality. And we are, you know, everything in, in life is grounded. It's all in relationship to the earth. The, the, the earth holds life to its bosom. And, and so groundedness is a quality of being. And in our culture, I mean, that's where hell is down beneath our feet. That's, that's our sort of eschatology of the whole thing. And, and heaven's up there, and we're trying to raise our consciousness and go higher. And my goodness, can we not come to rest on the earth? And I think we've turned the legs into prosthetics in our culture. We, we don't have a sense of their intelligence, their attunement to the earth, the nourishment that comes up through them to hold us in our being. And so we lose our groundedness. And the other, the fourth quality for me is centeredness. I mean, everything has a center. You know, I can, I can balance this on its center if I had enough time. Um, the earth has a center. The, the, the earth revolves around the sun. That's the center of the solar system. The solar system revolves around the center of the galaxy, which is a black hole. And we have a center. And we have displaced ourselves. We've dislocated ourselves from our own center. And the center, you know, we're trying to live in the head, but, but the head isn't home. You can't come to rest in the head, to, to drop down through the body and find your way into the pelvic bowl, onto the pelvic floor, to the perineum. Then you can come to rest, and then you feel your center. And when you recover your center, then there is a, a still point in your being that, by contrast, shows up the subtlety of all the movements of life around you. And there's a line in my first book, New Self, New World, be still and know that life is subtle. And when we're driving, driving, we, there is no subtlety to life. And so there is no real life. And the fifth and final quality of being, for me, is attunement. I mean, everything is attuned to the whole. Everything. There's not an electron that is not attuned to the whole. And, and attunement is made possible by the other four qualities, by the spaciousness, the fluidity, the groundedness, the centeredness, these make attunement possible. So that process of integration 
I think, requires uh, an appreciation of how far we've come from the nature of our own being. And to honor, you know, in our culture, spaciousness is a deficit. She's empty-headed. I mean, this is, this is considered to be a drawback. Um, and, and fluidity, well, you don't want to yield too easily. You know, stand your ground. And, and groundedness, I mean, you know, we're so, we're so neurologically shaped by a value system that says up is good and down is bad, that our energy goes up. And the more stressed we are, the more um, vigorously that energy climbs within us. Well, let it come to rest on the earth. Let it be held by the earth. But, you know, if I say, uh, Joel, you're, you're looking a little low today, you know what that means in our culture. In another culture, that can mean, Joel, you're, you're looking at peace with yourself and at rest on the earth. But no, we've got this rigid up is good and down is bad that defeats our ability to come to rest in the body, on the earth, in the present. And, you know, it's not that you recover those qualities and then you can integrate. The integration is what enables each of those qualities to flourish. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because it's not, it's not co-opted. It's not um, something created or, or made by, you know, parts or the, the lack of integration. It, it's, a, it's a byproduct of integration yeah. taking place. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you have any, um, I don't know if the word is advice, but, you know, before you, you did that impression of somebody who's, you know, caught in, I think you write in your book about presenter mode. And um, you were demonstrating that earlier when you were, you know, voice was going higher up. And how would you um, invite people to, to speak or to move and act from this place, you know? And I, and I guess like the, there could be one answer, which is over time, do that integrative work, you know, that if you come back to it, um, you'll open up, um, you'll integrate, and then these qualities of being that you, you named will, will come online. But is there, is there like an in-the-moment practice that, that people could do, you know, like when they're speaking or being that they could track, like, oh, am I, you know, um, where, where am I right now? It's tricky because here's the nature of wholeness. You can't achieve it. It's already there. How could you? How could you can't even escape it? So then, you know, it's unlike those other virtues that, that, you know, you can take compassion or forgiveness or truth. You can achieve those things. But because of that, each of them carries a risk. And the risk shows up, for example, you're coming into a situation and you, you remember, yes, I should be compassionate here. Now, the brain in the head knows what compassion looks like, how it feels, how it behaves, and it, it brings the rest of you along. So you are in a divided state. Wholeness, you can't achieve it. All you can do is surrender to it. And that surrender is a physical letting down of tension. It is a physical softening into the world. And so, you know, when you're, when you're 
aware that you're not present, the only really reliable strategy I know of is to surrender. And not as, a, not as an idea, but as a physical sensation. And what facilitates that is pausing. When you're not present, you are caught in a pattern. And that pattern is driving forward. The one thing a pattern, a pattern can withstand criticism, it can withstand um, annoyance, it can withstand many things, but it can't withstand a pause. And if you just pause, you feel that surrender already beginning to happen as the pattern sort of crumbles and falls away. And then you come back to, to the training. And the training is what enables you to recover your sensitivity. And for me, you know, one of the places where we have been most desensitized is the pelvic bowl and especially the pelvic floor, which gets locked up. And the pelvic floor is an anatomical diaphragm within the body. So we speak of the diaphragm, thinking there's only one, but no, the pelvic floor is also a diaphragm. And it's, it's designed to move with the diaphragm in the chest. Well, if it's held in tension, then you are um, dulling the intelligence of the pelvic bowl. You are incapacitating your ability to ground yourself. And so it's not, you know, it's not something to suddenly realize in the moment, oh, I should, I should learn how to release my pelvic floor. It's something that takes time. But when you when you can feel the pelvic floor release to the in-breath and release to the out-breath, then the breath itself is no longer top-down. You know, we, I would never say to someone, take a deep breath, because again, the head knows exactly how that happens and how it feels, and it pushes the breath down into the body, which takes muscular effort, and the muscles get tired, and the breath goes shallow again. But if you can release the pelvic floor to the in-breath and release the pelvic floor to the out-breath, then the breath becomes a bottom-up experience where you actually feel it filling the bottom, filling the body from the pelvic floor up. And that has a calming effect. And that helps you come home to yourself and to the moment. Um, I don't know that, that, that that's of much use, but but at least it's... It's a it's a context that feels realistic to me. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah, beautiful. And as you as you talk about that release, I'm tuning into it, and so I can imagine that yeah, that it takes time. Yeah, that there's um, an an embrace, an acceptance of that of that contraction of the pelvic floor uh, over time, and then and then you know there's a um, an opening or relaxing of that pelvic floor in that process. Gently, gently, gently. And what you're doing is you're you're bringing sensitivity back to it. You're, you know, when a when a a part of the body falls into disuse, the brain devotes less and less um, real estate to it. And so you're actually by bringing awareness back to the pelvic floor, you're growing new neural pathways. 
and then it comes to life. And then, you see, I, I feel my pelvic floor as the ground of my being. And that's what I saw in no theater all those years ago. They were at rest on the pelvic floor. To come back to the ground of your being in that way is at the same time to dilate into the world the way a, you know, when a pebble drops into a pond, the ripples spread to its furthest edge. That's how it feels for me. Hmm. Well, this feels like a good place to bring our conversation to a close. And um, yeah, I really appreciate our, uh, being with you and, and um, yeah, just the, the journey you've been on and what you're sharing. And I do recommend people check out, I've read uh, Radical Wholeness and actually I recommend people check out the audio version of it as well, because you're reading that out and there's something really beautiful about that. You know, it's like um, you're, the feeling, uh, they're feeling you reading out what yeah. you've written and there's something very potent about that. So Thank you. Um, yeah, where can we find out more about your work, Philip? Yeah, I mean, the website really is the place to go. Um, embodiedpresent.com. And if I have time, I should just explain embodied present. I, the overall name for my work is the embodied present process. And what, so not the embodied present, the embodied, uh, not the embodied, not embodied presence, but the embodied present. And what it's pointing to, what it's trying to point to, is that it's not that the present is out there and I'm in here and I'm trying to connect to it. It's that when there is that spaciousness, that natural spaciousness of being within me, the present lives in me, moves through me at every moment. So I, I have embodied the present, not that I've achieved it, but that I've surrendered to what is already there. So my website um, is the place to go. And just to say, I've got um, workshops that are back up and running in the world, which is wonderful. Um, I'll be in, I'll be back in Europe in the fall. Um, and, and there's a membership, um, you know, it's as cheap as we can make it. It's $20 a month and it has, so many practices and uh, emails every week because because it's a long journey of remembering that that's that's how it feels to me we live in a culture dedicated to forgetfulness and that 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 remembering remembering the body remembering our way home to it it happens over time and and so the membership is designed to offer support every single week a new practice a new email a new video whatever it is to to help us not forget mm. yeah thanks philip and yeah i hope people check that out yeah it's been such a pleasure joel thank you so much just a, a heads up again if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create then head to coachesrising.com Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.